The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, put away your slip and slide and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 462 with guest Paul Stubbs, recorded live Monday, June 29th, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering .NET Nuke video training with Chris Hammond from Engage Software. On DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET Web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's open-faced like a roast beef sandwich, Car. Thank you very much. Welcome to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin back with you here. Richard will be here in just a minute. Got a little story for you today. Turns out there's a a programmer in the news. He had been missing from work for over a week. Finally, somebody noticed and called the police, and they went went over to his apartment and uh, broke the door down. They found him dead in the shower with the water still running with an empty bottle of shampoo sitting on the floor next to him. Apparently, he'd been washing his hair, but, you know, he was a programmer, so he was paying careful attention to the instructions. The instructions were laid out very clearly. They said, lather, rinse, and repeat. They never said to stop. Yeah. And with that, it's time for Better Know Framework. And today we're going back to WPF, System.Windows.IDataObject. This is an interface that provides a format-independent mechanism for transferring data. And it has some methods. It has a getData method, which retrieves a data object in a specified data format. It has a getDataPresent, which checks to see whether data is available in or can be converted to a specific format. It has a getFormats. It returns a list of formats the data in this object is stored in. And then set data. So you basically can check to see what's there. You have a get data and a set data. And it's used by the clipboard. So uh, that's just a nice little WPF class that if you have any kind of uh, object that's going to be returning data in multiple formats, use the iData object. And hey, we want to announce a new site that Microsoft has put up that Richard and I are contributing to. It's Thrive for Developers. And it's at www.microsoft.com slash click slash ThriveDev, T-H-R-I-V-E-D-E-V. And uh, basically, they're saying, we've heard from lots of developers that times are tough. You're doing more with less, applying your skills more broadly, and maybe even learning new tools. That's why we created Thrive, a one-step community hub that offers job postings, technical content, and community resources. And Richard and I have done a series of .NET Rocks uh, interviews for Thrive called Development in a Downturn. So uh, we, we've done 10 shows that are specifically focused on, on, uh, on, on, the, on the downturn, on the economic downturn, the recession, whatever you want to call it. 
Check it out. Thrive for Developers. That's Microsoft.com slash click slash Thrive Dev. And just a quick note that Infusion Software is still looking for good SharePoint guys and girls to uh, go to New York, to Dubai, to London, or Toronto for thrilling work with some really great and creative people. Send me an email, carl at franklins.net, if you're interested in that. Our guest today is Paul Stubbs. Paul is a Microsoft technical evangelist for SharePoint and Office. He focuses on information worker development community around SharePoint and Office, Silverlight, and Web 2.0 social networking. Paul's also worked with several other groups at Microsoft. He helped ship the first and second versions of Visual Studio Tools for Office and Visual Studio Tools for Applications, where he developed a new managed code application programmability development tool for InfoPath 2007. He also developed programmability features for future versions of Microsoft Office for the Groove team. Welcome, Paul. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming. Uh, programmability. That's a word that I haven't heard. Application programmability is a, ha- a word I haven't heard since the days of Olay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really what I focus on, right, is how helping the developers become productive in, in automating office applications and now SharePoint. And, you know, these are sort of key things because everybody's got Office running on their desktop already. So, but it's always been a struggle to really integrate uh, your own code into that model. I mean, VBA was one thing, but it's with .NET, the VSTO is it's not been an easy to, uh, row to hoe, so to speak. I love Visto. I love the fact that you can open up an Excel spreadsheet and drop a, a .NET button in there and 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 go to town. Though I guess the challenge, Paul, has um, has been distribution of that code, and um, I remember. Back in the day, we had uh, code that was sort of had to to go along with it, and then we had the ability to put the DLLs on a network share. But then we had security issues around that. What's the what's the scene look like now for deployment? Yeah, I mean, well, now VSTO supports Click Once deployment, so uh, you know the the way you get your code out there has been much improved over the way it was in the past. Um, but still, it's a client application, and you know the typical headaches go along with all client applications, mm. um, which I, you know is one of the reasons we see the huge boom in in web development, right? And the huge yeah. boom in that SharePoint is experienced and right. um, Silverlight development, right? It's really because there is this hurdle to get over in terms of deployment. Um, and with that said, there's some some reason behind that, right? Where things running full trust on your desktop, you know, when we were designing that, we thought long and hard about you know, not wanting to be the next uh, virus delivery system, right? Uh, <laughs> we can get you your virus in record time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that was really one of the, uh, um, you know, biggest things that we had to overcome and keep in mind. And, and you end up making trade-offs where you have to, you know, you know uh, lean on the side of security being the, the thing that trumps all. So when I think about, SharePoint, I think about that standard SharePoint look, you know, that SharePoint look and feel that we all know and love. And I know it's possible to, you know, skin with CSS and do all sorts of great stuff like that, but Silverlight sort of takes that to another level, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really it. I mean, we all love that that first picture that shows up on the SharePoint side. I think I know those people like family. Um, but... <laughs> But really, you know, I mean, users demand more. I mean, users are coming from, you know, these very rich interactive sites on the Internet, and they expect that type of of interactivity in the enterprise. You know, there, there's the new wave of, of uh, employees come in, you know, the younger and younger crowd. They're, uh, you know, they have an expectation that all the things that they do on the Internet, you know, why can't they do that on, on their enterprise applications, you know, and there's getting pushback in the, in the enterprise to have richer experiences. So what does it take to, uh, to, to make uh, SharePoint and Silverlight work well together? Well, I think Silverlight in itself is, is, is an amazing tool, right? I mean, if you look at some of the applications that have been created out there, things with like DeepZoom Explorer and uh, the Olympic site with video, if you imagine applying all of those type of sites you've seen externally to SharePoint, I think that, uh, you know, it really, it really becomes a, a great boom with SharePoint as the back end and having a Silverlight front end. 
um, you know, and then the coding model behind Silverlight is much easier than, you know, drudging through ASP.NET and, and uh, you know, CSS and HTML and dealing with that, you know, you're just using uh, C-sharp and the rich tools of Visual Studio to compile those and have rich designer support through things like Blend, right? So you're really talking about here is using SharePoint to create the data and to manage the content and then build yourself a custom Silverlight application, an ASP.NET application that pulls from that data and that uses it. Is that what you're really after? That's right. I mean, you can think of, uh, you know, Silverlight as little little islands or nuggets of user experience that you can that you can spread throughout your SharePoint site. Um, a lot of people look at a SharePoint site and they the first thing they think about is web parts. Now, yeah, web parts are a huge huge component to SharePoint, but that's not the only component. If you think about uh, some lower-level items of, like, the navigation bar or, you know, headers and footers or the sidebar navigation or application pages or content types or uh, lists and forms, I mean, all of these places are uh, areas where you can input Silverlight. So Silverlight fits well into web parts and it'll play along with the component model using, you know, web parts as that container. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that Silverlight can break out of those containers and really go any place in your SharePoint site that you want to put control and it really gives you super rich experiences. Well, you see a lot of Silverlight apps out there that own the whole browser space. They, they, there's nothing else. There's just a Silverlight app. Could you actually go that far with a SharePoint backend? Yeah, you could, and and we see that in some cases. Like there are some uh, sites that we have that are running uh, as a Silverlight front end, like the uh, MSSharePointDeveloper.com site is a site that's running a full-page Silverlight application, but backed up with SharePoint, for example. Um, and if you look at, you know, we I just had a talk with a customer just the other day about this same thing. It's like, well, how do I architect my site? How, do I do I use the one giant Silverlight application to to uh, surface the whole site, or do I break it down and put little pieces into web parts? And I think you know, I think we have uh, arguments on all sides on whether that should be the case, right? I mean, there's uh, the question of whether you're going to control the layout, meaning you as the Silverlight developer, you control the layout and you control how your Silverlight application looks or being more traditional SharePoint where you let the end user have some control over the layout. They can choose, you know, the way the web part zones are set up, and they can choose the which web parts they put onto a page, and you get a little more end user type configuration of your application, more of a mashup experience than if you have a giant, you know, one giant XAML running the whole page. And, of course, once you go to the giant XAML model, why would you want SharePoint on the back end at all? You're not really gaining anything, are you? Can I just use a, a RIA services type back end and leave SharePoint out of the loop? Yeah, you can. I mean, we see that. We we hear that question a lot, too, which is, well, why not just do this in ASP.NET and host it with Silverlight? But what SharePoint brings to you is all of the other stuff around that application. It brings you the, you know, list and library data support. It brings you check-in, check-out. It brings you workflow support. It brings you uh, Excel services and and so on. It brings you the, the the BDC to be able to get at that back-end data and surface that in your application. So right. while, you, while you see, you know, this one page, what, what we think we tend to see is that we see a, a very rich home page, if you will, but then as you get into more, you know, down to business, you see more granular and more targeted uses of Silverlight where it makes sense. So the homepage being more flashy gets you drawn in, show you information, but then when you get down into the, um, I really need to do some work, you see more targeted uses of Silverlight and not less flash but more business. So the thing, when I think of SharePoint, the things that I think of it does really well is that, you know, the workflow and the lists and and uh, being able to just handle the flow of a, of a transaction, of a process, and not just access to those lists, which I think is what Richard was getting at. You know, you can always just build a, a website, use the BDC, and access the data and just present the data uh, on that website, whether you're using Silverlight or not on an ASP.NET page. But it's the navigation and the process and the, that, that, really, that, that uh, SharePoint really... 
I mean, writing all that stuff is just who wants to do that when it's built in. Right. I mean, and there's some point where you have to ask yourself as a developer. I mean, we see we we hear this from like larger companies who tend to build everything themselves. But at some point, you have to ask yourself, where's the cutoff between I'm building all of this stuff myself and where I just let SharePoint take over as the platform right. and focus on my business logic for the for the front end. Right? And that seems to be what we're struggling with here. You know, just trying to define what's a good strategy towards how much of what goes where, you know, and in what situations. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's really, uh, you know, there's, it's kind of building a composite application, right? If I come back to this sort of mashup notion, this Web 2.0 concept of a composite application, you know, so you, so let's say you build this big Uber application that's one page, and then a user comes and says, oh, great, can I have forum support, or can I have a discussion list, or can you add a wiki to this app? Well, I mean, these type of things you could just easily add on with SharePoint because they're part of the platform. Or, oh, I need a new, you know, list added, right? I mean, so this whole ability to sort of plug in new features into your application very easily with SharePoint uh, gives you quite a bit of an advantage and a head start and not having to do it yourself. Yeah, so uh, do you, the the applications that you see being built, are they using the, the standard SharePoint uh, stuff, and then every once in a while, when you need sort of some some rich UI, you you plop a SharePoint part down there or a SharePoint uh, window. I guess you would say. I mean, I guess I'm just trying to envision where you know where 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 it can make sense. I get you. You're talking about this demo uh, that uh, that you want to talk about here. Yeah. So there's a, there's a um, a sample application that one of the architects here on our team wrote, and I think it's a very interesting demo um, and all the source codes out there. And what it does is it shows you how to uh, create an additional view on top of your uh, your list and library data. And so this is sort of a, t- a technical demo showing, uh, like if you had a picture, a library full of pictures, how to show those pictures in a way that's a you know, slide view control, so to speak. So the pictures slide left and right, and it's very interactive like you'd see on the Internet, right? Um, but also, um, it shows you some techniques, and you can grab some of the code on how to actually just go back and, and read the entire data structure of SharePoint and expose that into your application. In, in the case, they almost made like a file browser or file explorer uh, in this Silverlight application, so there's some code to show you that. So it demonstrates a lot of interesting uh, aspects around how you can uh, change the look and feel of SharePoint and and to manipulate the data in new and interesting ways that, you know, Creating those in ASP.NET would have been difficult, or creating those experiences um, out of the box on SharePoint are just not possible. So we're talking about Silverview here. Yeah, so Silverview is the is the demo. I uh, got a shrinkster to the SharePoint Silverview site. It's uh, shrinkster.com/slash17igloo5, 17i5, and uh, there it shows some uh, some screenshots from just what you're talking about, where you have lists of, of photos and rich data that goes along with those photos. Right. So imagine you have, uh, you know, a photo a library. You don't just look at it in the list view, but you right. have this now rich view. And this example was written as a web part that fits inside the page. So what you see is the normal out-of-the-box SharePoint Chrome around that page. Yeah. Um, and, and again, you'll see you'll see different variations of of whether you make a big giant Silverlight control or whether you make smaller web parts, and it really, I think it comes down to a couple of questions about like how is your application going to interact? How do those parts communicate with each other? Whether mm. you make it one application or whether you make it a bunch of Silverlight controls, right. are they going to be reusable? Then that probably leans more towards using web parts. Yeah. Do you have just this one app that works together today, and you want to rewrite it in Silverlight as the front end? Uh, so it's really a whole series of questions you have to ask before, you know, you can really answer that question. But again, usually what we're seeing is typically on the home page we're seeing like more Silverlight uh, for a richer experience for that first first interaction with this site. And then as you drill down into the site, you see more SharePoint Chrome and more targeted uh, Silverlight parts and pieces being sprinkled throughout the site. And it's cool. It looks like a you know a carousel photo viewer with where they the pictures look like they're framed as Polaroids. You know, it's kind of neat. And what's interesting about that too, if if you browse to a document library, not pictures, 
you will see thumbnail, thumbnail images of the documents on those slides. And uh, I, I believe he's hmm. using a, a tool from OpenText called Spicer. Hmm. And what that does is it rips through the documents, creating thumbnails, and those are displayed on the fly inside of those uh, slides. So as you get to a slide, like a PowerPoint document, you'll be able to then use the scroll bar within the slide to browse through the individual pages or pictures of the slide as you go through each document. I want to use a Richardism here. Are we walking toward, this is something Richard always says, are we, are we moving toward a day when uh, the, whole silver, the whole SharePoint experience could be wrapped in a, in a really cool-looking Chrome UI? I mean, the whole thing from sign it from logging in and signing in to navigating lists to going through and filling out the forms and stuff. Is there a way we can make it all look that cool? I mean, I, I think so. I mean, this is my personal bias, but we have these internal discussions today about how far does the SharePoint team take this. And I think from my perspective and, and what I've seen, I think the answer is yes, um, that debate's still going on. And so, um, but what you are seeing, though, is that lots of people are really, I mean, almost every demo that we see being written today in SharePoint has some aspect of Silverlight in it. We're seeing companies like, you know, Component One and Infogistics and those guys building out like a whole suite of their Silverlight SharePoint controls. And so I think the momentum is moving forward to, to keep going down this path because it is so compelling and it really does give you, you know, sort of the best of both worlds. Yeah. Silver, uh, Silverlight provides the glitz over top of this pretty now rugged framework of SharePoint, right? Although I'm, I'm right. always going to go back onto the scaling issues. Is this scale okay? Well, it's just SharePoint. So yeah. to the extent that SharePoint scales, right. because remember, Silverlight runs on the client, so it doesn't add any server overhead for this to really go on. It's I'm wondering if it actually technology. reduces it to some degree because you're doing less thinking on the server to create the page. You're more or less just serving the list right to, to Silverlight. Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, you could uh, decide where to offload that business logic and how much you want to do on the client, depending on how you want to protect that information and how sensitive the information is on whether you wanted to process on the client or on the server. But definitely those are tactics you could take to help offload some of the work from your server. And another big area that I see is around um, some of the Silverlight 3 features. And I think the biggest one is the out-of-the-box experience with Silverlight 3. Okay. Um, I think this really creates like a huge... So if you can imagine you're a business user and you have this web part, which is maybe a KPI list of, you know, the production line. You know... Every day you have to go to browse to this web page to see this KPI of the production line. Right. Imagine you just blow it to your desktop through the out-of-the-browser feature, and it just sits on your desktop like almost like a gadget, right? Right. But the data and everything's being served up from the SharePoint site. Well, that yeah, that was one scenario that I was thinking about where you have a, a, a piece that's totally SharePoint, and then it's just pulling data from the list, you know, in a sort of a read-only way. I mean, that's an easy thing to do. It's when you start trying to do what SharePoint does really well, which is navigate through workflows that you, I, I can't imagine how you could, you know, um, bring, sh bring Silverlight into that without taking over that whole process. Well, remember, you can, you can use the SharePoint API to sort of peek in and get a status of where the workflow is and at what stage it's at, right? and whether you have tasks pending. And so you can imagine serving those up and serving up some sort of status control that says, hey, where's this workflow at? I know I kicked it off, and who's got it, and who's, who's, wait, who's it waiting on, and things like that, right? I mean, those are things that you could service through Silverlight. So you're saying you could effectively redo that, the whole front end if you wanted to, if you had the bandwidth to do that? Yeah, sure. I mean, really, everything's fair game. And the way I like to tell people about it is, you know, when you think about when you think about SharePoint, think about every every place that there's an HTML tag in SharePoint is a fair game, you know, for Silverlight control. And so, hmm. you know, we in the book that uh, Steve Fox and I wrote, um, we we go through some of these examples, like replacing content types. Right? Imagine you have a content type which ends up being a rich uh, Silverlight control 
to instead of just typing in the value for the content field, but it's actually maybe a slider control or a graph or some other rich control that you can use to enter information. So it's very uh, once you expand sort of the notion of where does Silverlight fit into SharePoint and think about it more like, well, I'll, I see an HTML tag. Let me put Silverlight in that spot instead of this HTML tag. You know, there's really a lot of places that you can can enter Silverlight. And, you know, most people think about Silverlight as this big application that has, like, all sorts of stuff spinning. But imagine it even as smaller as a control, as a content control, or something even smaller than that, right? And there's, so there's lots of targeted places where Silverlight could fit without all the flash, but it gives you the processing power behind it. Yes, I'm thinking something widgety, and I just don't tend to think of Silverlight that way. It always appears big. So to, you, you talked about status control would be a great sort of example of something small, very little of real estate on the screen, but giving a good visual representation of that. Yeah, really. I mean, it's the iceberg model, right? Where there's just the tip showing, but you have all the power behind it. It's interesting. I, I, I'm thinking about the, we get into sort of an Ajax. If we've got a whole bunch of chunks of Silverlight running like that, can they talk to each other well, like on the browser? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I show, like, so I get back to our book for a second. In the book, I show an example of one of the common features that people want to do is have web parts communicate with each other. Right. And when you have the part-to-part communication today in, in ASP.NET and in SharePoint, is is really a server-side model where the parts communicate with each other on the server-side. But Silverlight is a client-side technology, and so the part-to-part infrastructure doesn't really fit too well with Silverlight. You okay. can still do it, but it, there's some hacks to get around doing it. But So the way I show in the book is an example of using the um, JavaScript bridge to have the Silverlight parts communicate with each other through JavaScript. Nice. Right. And they auto-discover each other, and so as you add new parts on, they can discover each other and register with each other so they all stay in sync. And, and that's in the data chapter in our book, and I show that. But since then, Silverlight 3 has come on the scene, and the Silverlight team sort of built that feature into Silverlight itself. So you don't have to do sort of the JavaScript bridge hacks that I show you in the book. It's built into Silverlight, so we have the, what they call the local, the local communication where the Silverlight controls can communicate with each other locally by passing messages back and forth. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, without whose support this show would not be possible. If you're a Silverlight or WPF developer, you've heard that having a single code base for your web and Windows user interface is becoming a hot topic. How about building a Silverlight application and then reusing the XAML and the code behind for a WPF application? Your customers will enjoy the identical user experience, and you will enjoy some free time as you have to write the code for both applications only once. This is not a scenario from the future. The guys from Telerik have developed a line-of-business demo application that shows you how to do it all. The application uses Telerik Silverlight and WPF suites, which represent two almost identical tool sets for building rich web and desktop applications. Both are derived from the same code base and share a common API, allowing nearly complete code reuse between WPF and Silverlight development. You got to check it out. Telerik.com slash sales dashboard. Hey, and don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. And this starts begging the question of, do you end up with sort of chunks of client-side code with no UI on it that are masters? Like maybe there's one component that all the other ones talk to to say, go get me this data. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, Silverlight doesn't have to have a UI when you throw it down on the page, right? There's, right. there's nothing that says you have to display something. Um, and one of the examples, by using this technique of the client-side Silverlight controls talking to each other, it it expands outside the web parts. So with the web parts talking to each other, that's fine and interesting. But now with Silverlight, they can talk to anything on the page. You could have a Silverlight navigation bar communicating with the web parts on the page so that when a user adds a new web part, it'll automatically light up on the Silverlight navigation bar. Interesting. Not through yeah. server-side, but through because of the, the, you know, the client-side communicated with each other. Yeah, that's hugely powerful. I just, just You start to tip over this idea. And, of course, the nice thing is we're working at Silverlight, so we're, not, we're writing regular C-sharp or VB.net code. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, so even further, right, with the Silverlight 3 implementation that... Uh, 
the Silverlight controls don't even have to be on the same page. For example, I could have a Silverlight control on one page communicating with a Silverlight control on a separate tab within my browser. Oh, man. Wow, that's cool. Or I could have a Silverlight control on my page communicating with a Silverlight control on a Firefox browser that happens to be open on my desktop. I guess that's what happens when you add state, you know. It's sort of you, you can do that kind of stuff. But interesting to think inter-browser between IE and Firefox. Mm. Hmm. And I, on my blog, I have a great, uh, some, some code to show that, but a, a link to a great example where um, one of the uh, evangelists here took the uh, chess application that was written for Silverlight that used to show, uh, you know, JavaScript versus C-sharp battling against each other. <laughs> right. They they converted that to do, use the local communication, and they had an instance of uh, the chess application running on Firefox and an instance running in IE, and they let the two JavaScript implementations battle it out across browser. Uh, wow. <laughs> I love it. Wow. I'm watching computers play chess against themselves. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they did a Chrome version and stuff. But it, it just opens up, if you think more broadly about, you know, really what is SharePoint and Silverlight and how do they mix together, um, there's a lot of really powerful sort of uh, examples and metaphors and uses that come to mind. Well, and, and you start making the distinction between the interface part of SharePoint and the services part of SharePoint. That's right, yeah. Uh, all right, so uh, what do I really need to get into doing? I'm now smitten with this idea, actually. Of Is there any special tooling I need? Is there a VSTO for Silverlight in SharePoint? <laughs> Not yet. Ah, I just, so, just I, I feel like without you, you don't have to say anything here because it maybe it's an NDA. I feel like I just described your job for the next <laughs> six months. <laughs> well, I think you know, getting started with with this is is really kind of the hurdle, and um, you know, sometimes people think, oh, where do I even begin with SharePoint? It's so large and yeah. it's just this gigantic, enormous thing. Where do I even get started? Um, but really, you know, SharePoint is built on top of ASP.NET as the platform. So as an ASP.NET developer, you're already, you know, 80%, 70% there towards learning SharePoint. It's that foundation of knowing ASP.NET and CSS and HTML um, that really give you a leg up on what you're doing. So the, those are the core skills. Exactly. And those are really, you know, fundamentally uh our SharePoint, and SharePoint just builds on those and adds new features on top of those kind of core skills. Hmm. But when yeah. you talk about, like, Silverlight development, there's a bunch of things that you can get started with Silverlight development, and we kind of categorize these developments into sort of three buckets. One is a no-touch, so where you're really going to uh, put Silverlight into sort of an iframe, and you just put a link, so you open up like a a content editor web part, and you just throw in an iframe to a Silverlight control that's hosted someplace else. You may right. do this like on your blog, right? You may have a blog where you have a sidebar that's a Silverlight control that's hosted on the, maybe the Silverlight streaming site, for example. So you can do that same thing within SharePoint, right? So you can effectively add Silverlight content to SharePoint that has very little touch or no touches in this case what we're talking about, right? So that doesn't take any effort. Then we have sort of a low touch, which is... Uh, you know, you're using a web part as a host and you're creating a separate uh, web part, but the content within there is uh, not really integrated too deeply with the web part model. And then finally, we have the high-touch model, which is really you're really developing a brand-new-from-scratch web part and you're going in there writing all the code and doing all that. And so that's really where we see the developer tools kicking in and you really take off. And so... In order to do that area, we're talking about Visual Studio. And so Visual Studio 2008 um, with the Visual Studio extensions for WSS, and the ones that I use are the final version, which is 1.3. Okay. You guys, you guys use those tools at all? W, yeah, I don't know about the WSS tools. Yep, this, uh, Sahil talked about those on our, on our show. All right. And in DNR TV. Yeah, so there's a lot of... Uh, you, you can find a lot of third-party tools uh, out on CodePlex, and there are tons and tons of SharePoint stuff and tools on CodePlex. And some of those are around, you know, packaging WSPs and doing things like that. But um, really, you can do all these things with the, the, the uh, VSE tools. And it, it gives you, you know, project templates, and it does all the packaging for you. 
and uh, really allows you to get started very simply by, um, you know, creating a new uh, web part project and then adding in the Silverlight controller into that web part project and then deploying it to your server and is basically the model that you do. So it's very similar to doing any other development, just that the content of your web part is a uh, Silverlight controller as opposed to some HTML tag. Right. Beyond that, so then the the Silverlight, like I said, just replaces that HTML tag. It drops in there. Do you have to test that Silverlight component in SharePoint, or can I? Can I I'm really thinking in terms of I built some Silverlight stuff against a regular ASP.NET page. How far am I from getting that into my Silverlight app? Um, you don't. You can test it out. So you could test it outside of SharePoint. It really depends on on what you're doing, and and you know, like let's say that. Um, your web part is using the SharePoint API to feed information to parameter startup parameters of your Silverlight control, right? Right. If you were going to test that outside, you need to mock those interfaces up to simulate that data and those things. But it's totally possible, and it's probably a good mechanism to do where you get get most of the look and feel of your Silverlight control working before you then integrate it with SharePoint. Yeah, before yeah. you inter- introduce SharePoint into the equation at all. Right. That's right. Yeah, and I mean, it really comes down to two, which is sort of the, the model that Microsoft's been moving in for the last few years, which is the separation of the designer and the coder, right, with things like Blend. Right? A lot of our projects, what we'll do is we'll hand off um, a project to a design firm. They'll design all the stuff in Blend, send us back that project, which is just SAML, and then we'll plug it in and wire it up with the code and then wire it up with SharePoint. Right. Yeah. Well, and this doesn't sound all that different from regular SharePoint development, too. You do an awful lot of work in ASP.NET before you actually drop into SharePoint. That's right. I mean, I, I think the thing is, is the model is not different, um, just that instead of using, you know, the forms tag, for example, or the H1 tag, you're using the object tag, and it happens right. to be a Silverlight control and not a, you know, H1 control. Right. So I think the model is exactly the same. We touched on this a little bit, but let's dive into... Web parts versus SharePoint objects. Do I need a web part in order to to host a SharePoint object? Well, you know, again, the answer, the short answer is no. The long answer is that web parts are sort of the container model for SharePoint. Mm-hmm. And so, if you if your layout d- design is such that um, you have a web part page where where users are expecting to be able to pull some content or some functionality from an existing web part. Let's say you have a calendar control or a weather control or something like that or a KPI list, something that the user could go pick afterwards at runtime and say, oh, I want to add this to this page. Okay. Uh, that really kind of fits into the, the model of being in a web part. And once right. you have um, a web part, you could, of course, pop up another Silverlight window if you wanted to. You don't have to keep everything contained within that web part, right? Well, once it's in a web part, you can you can make your Silverlight control uh, do everything Silverlight controls do today. Right. They could theoretically float in an iframe, or they could yeah. uh, take over the full page. Um, but in general, you want if you if it's in a web part, you want to try to stick with that model because it gets kind of weird for the user. Um, <laughs> it gets weird for really, the user. <laughs> it's not a technical issue; it's more of a you design a user experience issue. Right. Sure. Um, but if you had, like, for example, one of those places we see that is, like, if you have a banner ad. Let's say you put a banner ad at the top of your SharePoint site. Many times those banner ads, and, and people expect this, do break out of their frames. Right. Right? And so in those cases, I think that's a perfect experience. But there's no technical reason why I couldn't do it out of a web part. It just may not be what the user is expecting. So um, the, the other thing, the red flag that goes up in my brain is, oh, great, another layer of of technology to add to an already suffering virtual PC image, <laughs> you know, to slow down. I mean, the development and debugging experience can be really painful in virtual PC. I guess maybe the the Windows uh, 7 boot from VHD is going to really help that. Yeah, well, I've been doing a lot of work with that, doing exactly that thing where you create a, a VHD image that you boot from natively um, to give you sort of the near experience. But mm. So you're telling me you don't run Windows Server as your main desktop? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Actually, I do. Believe it or not, I do. Uh, the server is my main desktop, yeah. The 64-bit server, 2008. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we're running into this problem now. Uh, 
with the current builds that we're using and stuff. And we have so much on there that we want to show. Our VHDs are, you know, getting like 36 gigabyte VHDs with yeah. a 6 gig of RAM memory requirement. Right. So you're not exactly uploading them around to people either. Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, and uh, they run okay. I mean, but they're, that's with, like, everything installed on, like, every server product installed. Yeah, right. You know, so we can test out, like, the exchange interaction with the OCS server interaction, right? So this is everything on it. Right. As a typical, you know, uh, SharePoint developer, you don't need that much stuff on it, right? And we have sure. images that we use for, like, you see at demos and conferences that we use, which is much smaller, just has the SharePoint components that we need, just has Visual Studio. And those easily run on our laptops with, they run in like two gig of memory space easy. I'm really loathe to run these multi-app, because I would never do it on a server. I would never, you know, Exchange does not work and play well with others, okay? <laughs> like, an Exchange server is a dedicated server. So, in my yeah. viewpoint, you need a separate VM just for that. And you really should have a separate VM for SQL Server. And you yep. should have a separate VM for your SharePoint space. Like, and suddenly you're running... Three, four VMs at once. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree. And but you know, when you only have one PC to work with, you got to make do to uh, you know test out and bang the tires on some features. And so what you have is one VHD. Well, this is how I got twenty-four gigs of RAM into my workstation and four cores. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But definitely, if you were going to do this type of development all day long, you'd want to have a setup similar to that, or you'd want to be running it natively. If you're doing like you know, as an evangelist like I do, in certain cases, I'm just running apps either that someone else wrote or I'm just adding a feature to another app. I'm not right. in there all day long. So it's bearable for the time that I have. What about master pages? How are these going to work? So I think in the same thing, right? We talked earlier about um, having this sort of uh, piece or chunk of code that may not have a UI. And these are the kind of things that you could put on your master pages. So you have this sort of built-in controller, as we talked about earlier, uh, for all your pages just light up because you've added to the master page, right? And these are type of examples where you can uh, put content that shows up on all the pages and integrate them into your master pages. And it's not, uh, again, it's back to the model of any place where there's HTML, you could stick Silverlight. And so think more broadly besides just having your uh, web parts, but also integrating Silverlight tightly into the master page. You could have common libraries that you kind of have running down at the master page level that all the parts or all the applications could take advantage, for example. Yeah, okay. Uh, so what does it take to deploy Silverlight in this scenario? Is it any different from a regular Silverlight deployment? Well, one of the things that's challenging around the deployment is um, really just, you know, the tool support. And uh, the tool support's going to get much better in the future, but what you have today with Visual Studio 2008 and the VSE tools it takes a little bit of work because when you create a Visual Studio project, like let's say, for example, you create a web part project in um, Visual Studio using VSE, that creates a web part and it deploys that web part. Well, when you compile that, it creates a WSP, which is the packaging format for SharePoint. And within that WSP are all the files and the assembly and everything needs to go up to the server, right? Right. But the thing is, the thing that's missing is the zap file. Because Silverlight projects have to be part of another project. It's not like you can just add a new class to the existing web part project. It's a whole separate project that has its own compiler path, and it creates a zap file, which is the, which is the compiled file with all the other files stuck inside of it, right? Okay. So the question is, now I have this solution that has two projects. It has a Silverlight project, and it has your web part project, which is the deployment project for SharePoint. So how do you get the zap file to get packaged inside of the WSP file and then sent up to the server? Right. Because what you really want is to have a F5 experience for that. Yeah, I hit a key and everything goes where it needs to go. Exactly. And so the, the solution, like a lot of times you'll see, uh, you know, if you look at tutorials and things on the web today, there's like, well, you create this web project and, oh, here's a list of 20 steps to go do manually. Right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, that's annoying. So, like, for example, so in, in the book, again, I talk about all the steps you need to go through, but basically boils down to sort of the secret sauce is that you uh, create an empty, an empty element inside of your uh, web part project, and an element is a, like a SharePoint term for the way you 
get stuff up to the server, but right. in that element, you add a reference to your zap file. But when you add a reference to the zap file, you go and you do file, you know, add existing item. You mm-hmm. browse to where your zap file is, and you add it. But you don't add it. If you look next to the add, there's a little drop-down next to the add, which if you pull that drop-down, one of the choices is add as a link. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. So now what happens is that... I want to, whenever I build, it'll grab the link to the zap file where it's located. So I don't have to copy the zap file around or do anything. The, the deployment project will automatically go get the zap file. And then the last step that you need to do is really just, uh, in the solution, you need to add a project dependency. Because normally when you add references to other projects in Visual Studio, what happens Visual Studio says, oh, I'm adding a project reference to this project, that means I'm going to take the build output, which is the DLL, and I'm going to set up a dependency so that I make sure that this DLL is built before I go grab it. Right. But that doesn't exist if you just add it as a link, so you need to manually go to the SharePoint, uh, to the solution properties of your project under project dependencies and then manually say, hey, this project is dependent upon this project. And then every time you build your deployment project, it'll automatically go build the Silverlight project grab a copy of the output, which is a zap file, and then package it in your WSP and send it up to the server. Make sense? Okay. <laughs> it's just not book. easy. I'm just, I'm, the real message I'm getting here is this is not a simple process. Well, it's not, it's not overly complicated. It's just you need to think through the fact that, uh, you know, I need to somehow get this file, which is not a normal build output. It's a zap file, up to the server and packaged. And how do I do that? So... This sort of step, this, once you do this once, you don't need to do it again for the project, and it right. helps you, you know, from there forward, every project you do will be exactly the same way. Okay. So, so what happens is, because really what you want to do is everything that you ever put on the server in SharePoint should be done through a WSP file, right? There should be no, here's a list of instructions I give to my administrator to, you know, put on the production server. I should hand them a WSP and say, run this. And so in order to do that, you need to make sure that you get your zap file into the package, you know, as you normally can. Right. Okay, so then the next, my next biggest fear, by far, maybe the largest fear of them all, is debugging this thing. Yeah. What happens when it doesn't work? Well, the first step is to write bug-free code. Ah, Uh, excellent choice. Yeah. I can do that. Why don't you just do that? (laughs) (laughs) But I think, you know, debugging anything on the server is always a challenge. And in this case, we're, we're kind of split because we're debugging stuff on the server potentially yes. and we're debugging stuff on the client. So you need to bring in skills from both of those sides. So, you know, there's a set of skills and a set of requirements to debug your Silverlight application. All of those still apply here. It's no different just because it's running in SharePoint. You do the exact same things. You have to attach to the instance of IE to get the debugger to run correctly, and you have to attach to you know, the instance of the, the uh, worker process to do that on SharePoint. So those skills apply. There's really nothing new to debugging it on Silverlight. And, in fact, it's actually fairly simple. You just attach to the worker process, attach to the IE instance you're running, and you'll be able to step through your server code into your client code, back out of your client code into your server code. You should be able to step through both sides of the process uh, right within your project. What becomes more difficult is, is debugging things that are, that are uh, like events, right, PM, uh, the the events that occur before you install your package and things like that, those are harder to debug, but those are just general SharePoint debugging that really have nothing to do with Silverlight. Right. Now, this is not easy stuff, and, and of course, the challenge is when, and this is a whole other show, it's just making server debugging work. Sometimes it it's gets not, grum- grumpy, and you've yeah, got to tear it apart. It's not too bad. I mean, there's, there's cases where you have the worker process going, and you may have multiple worker processes because of the way that SharePoint cycles them and stuff, but it's like... It, you know, if you're just doing quick and dirty debugging, you could just select all the worker processes and attach to all of them, right. and Visual Studio will figure out the right one and stop the debugger at the right time. Yeah. Or just, you know, sometimes what I'll do is I'll just kill them all, and then the first one that pops back up, I'll attach to that one. <laughs> this is the brute <laughs> force method. That is brute, buddy, and it's fine when you're running short duration debugging. Like, I just want to make sure this one thing works or find out what's going on there. Where it yep. just gets 
really a pain is when you've got a debug over a longer period of time, you're looking for an unusual event and the yep. cycle the process recycles or, you know, you run yourself out of memory or you run yourself out of threads. Like it could be quite aggravating. Yep. Yep. But this, but um, this is a different again, show. All we get by down itself. to like this. logging and things like that into that scenario. Yeah. All right. Uh, what else? Yeah. Where can we go from here? Well, I think uh, probably the best place to go is to the uh, MSSharePointDeveloper.com site. That has a ton of information on getting started. Um, obviously, the Silverlight.net site has a ton of information on Silverlight to get started. Uh, and then, obviously, uh, Steve and I's blog. So just blogs.msdn.com slash Steve underscore Fox. And mine is blogs.msdn.com slash pstubs. And we'll have tons of information. Um, most of the stuff we've been working on for the last year has been around uh, the upcoming version of Office 2010 and SharePoint 2010. So uh, definitely we're going to have a ton of stuff in the next few months uh, coming around those products. So keep an eye out for that stuff. And uh, hopefully with the imminent release of Silverlight 3, we're going to see great things there. Um, so this is just a super exciting time for both Silverlight and SharePoint, and uh, so really stay on top of all the stuff, and we're going to be posting a ton of content in the near future. Awesome. Thank you. It's been a great uh, great hour. It's flown by. Yeah, another one of those shows just disappears, right? I'll say, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Where'd he go? <laughs> great. Yeah, no, it's been fun. Okay, Paul, thank you. And thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com Got a transmitter band by the FCC Yes, I'm a talk